Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 214. This week, we talk with Sahil Malik about the identity landscape, how to recognize ML-generated images, Excel gains OCR capabilities, and using WSL to watch Star Wars. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week, we have Sahil Malik. He's a hands-on techie, and after 15 years as an MVP, 12 years as a consultant, he now works in the larger larger Azure group in Microsoft. How's it going, Sahil? I am excellent. How are you? Very good. Very good. Okay, so Carl, I see stickers in the notes. What's going on? Yeah, we just wanted to remind people uh, that if you want some MS Dev Show stickers, to email us at feedback at msdevshow.com uh, with stickers in the subject line and your address in the body. That way, we can mail some out to you. Yes, it's going to be lots of work for you, Carl. Okay, uh, what do we have for the comment of the week? <laughs> uh, the comment of the week comes from Alan Mendelovich uh, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. He said, Jason, I just listened to the episode where you talked about your OLED TV. I just got one myself a month ago, and it is awesomeness. Yes, I agree. And Carl has finally seen it in person. Yes, I almost missed it. So I, I was <laughs> over by Jason's house uh, uh, over the weekend. And uh, after like being there for like eight hours, you're like, oh, you still haven't seen the TV. Let's go to the basement. Yeah. And I will say those blacks on there are just impressive. It does melt into the uh, the background. Yeah. Except we were talking like the wall is not painted a dark color. So the TV is darker than the wall with the lights off, <laughs> which is which is pretty wild. And then, uh, yeah, so Carl, uh, he was over this weekend and helped me upgrade the uh, the diesel tank on my truck from 34 gallons to 55 gallons. And, uh, you know, Carl likes to get payback every once in a while. So I disconnected, uh, the fuel line from the tank. I was underneath the truck <laughs> and, uh, I don't know how it happened, but the, the, the truck alarm, it kept going off. And I actually had the, the keys were locked in the safe in the, in the truck. It's, it's a really strange option, but it has a safe. And I, a lot of times just keep the keys locked in there. So Carl decided to push the ignition button, which turns on the fuel pump which sprayed diesel all over me. So my garage <laughs> still smells like diesel and I have thrown away all of the clothes that I was wearing. So thank you for that, Carl. I, that was just you a funny story. You wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because Actually, what's funny, now I'm wearing jeans that have a hole in them because that's that's what I got. So, you know, pants are expensive. So... All right. If you want to get mentioned on the show like Alan, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on our website or Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Absolutely. Thank you, Alan. Okay. Let's jump into the news. Uh, first one here, how to recognize fake AI generated images. This will be useful. Yeah. So I, I think it was like a, a week or two ago, I s- started seeing lots of uh, news articles about uh, how uh, AI can generate uh, these uh, people that don't exist, but look like there's these photograph quality images. And uh, today I found this uh, medium article that shows what to look for on images uh, that uh, even though they look like real people, if you like dig hard enough, there are clues that, uh, you know, these images aren't uh, real. Uh, so the first one is if you kind of look at like the straight portions of hair, it looks like, uh, you know, somebody kind of, you know, smudged it in paint. 
So like an MS Paint or something like that. Oh, I see it now. I had to like I had to make her face like as big as my monitor, and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" But I, I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Man, that's really subtle. Yeah, and and another one is where like where it really nails the face, but it can't do the background. Mm. So there's parts where there's text, and it just kind of like makes up gobbledygook <laughs> that just like it's obviously not even like a foreign character. It's just you know. Yeah. Something it decided to make up. Yeah. Like aliens, you know, trying to represent our characters or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next one is kind of interesting because while it's trying really hard to, you know, make these faces, it's not being trained to figure out how to make the background. So it might, you might get this, they show this like really swoopy, like distorted background. Mm -hmm. And another one where there's just like, I don't know, like cloudy bubble, colorful bubbles that are in the background. That's the alien ship. Yep. Uh, another one is asymmetry where they show one where like the ears aren't the same and the earrings are different sizes. Uh, one where like the, the eyes are looking in different directions. Uh, but it it has another one where it has two good eyes, but they're like massively different color, which to be fair, I I think there are people that can do that, but that's very rare. Well, and the eyes too. I mean, like that, that's, that happens. Yeah. Um, weird teeth where there's one where like, you know, the teeth are just definitely not the right shape and size. Um, uh, it's kind of amazing that we're like this close, right? Like yep. the, the face, you know, you look, you look at it and you're like, that's a real face. And then it's just like, oh yeah, but we have no idea how to make their teeth the right sizes. <laughs> yep. Um, kind of like mixing and matching male and female parts where they'll have like uh, feminine eyes with makeup and earring, but like, uh, you know, facial hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl, a lot of what you're describing actually applies to the real world too. Like bad teeth, mixing and matching sexes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that, that's, I mean, that, that's what, I, that's kind of what I was saying before is like, you know, like you, you, there will be, man, this is, this is almost just as bad, right? Cause if, if now, if we have this algorithm that tries to determine if your picture is real or not, you're going to have these people, these people that are, you know, I, I don't, maybe it's rude to call them edge cases, but you know, they're, if they do have like two different colored eyes, like that is, that is obviously the exception rather than the rule. And the algorithm will be like, ah, eh, no, your photo looks fake, you know, cause you have two different color eyes, which is not fair at all, obviously. Well, and, and I have two differently sized and shaped ears, mm-hmm. so I could very easily, uh, trip that, uh, detection if we ever get that far. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, it's funny cause a lot of this, like if you've ever played around with the, uh, the clone brush, um, in, in Photoshop, I don't, is that the the new one? There's like the magic clone brush or whatever the heck it's called, where you can, if you have like a pole in the middle of the picture, you can, uh, you can do that and it'll use essentially like machine learning to, to sort of figure out, it'll interpolate what's supposed to be in there. Um, I've used it for like, we were at uh, great America and, um, like my wife was like, Hey, like we're all wearing the, the, like the name badges or the, the, the passes. And she's like, I don't want those in the photo. So you know, I have no idea how to use Photoshop, but I know how to click on that tool and I just drag it over that area and boom, they were just magically gone and it interpolated what was behind them, which was amazing. Content aware backfill. Yeah, that's, that's it. You got it. That's a, yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. So uh, the artifacts that happen as a result of that are really similar to this for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next story, Microsoft Excel app, insert data from picture tech goes live. This is amazing. Yeah, so right now it's not quite available for iOS, but if you have the Android version of Excel, you can actually take a picture of a table that's kind of like anywhere, like printed out in a book, in a magazine, on a website or something, and it'll uh, populate that same data into a, a table, and you can save that off. 
and yeah, uh, make data entry a lot easier. That is that is really cool. I mean, that is such a good example of machine learning, you know, from from vision. But the the irony of this, I think, is that you know, there's some cases where you try to import something in Excel and it's just like gibberish, right? Ironically, there will be times when it actually makes sense to print it out and then scan it in <laughs> and have it recognize it because it's like, hey, stop looking at like all the extra information there. Just look at the final result and and bring this in. I mean, am I is, am I right on that? Couldn't it, it, couldn't you imagine a, a situation like that? It very well could be. Yeah, because I've tried to that, insert like you know tables that are like HTML. You know, like copy from the web, and you try to paste it in, and it's like it's like trying to like really overthink what's going on. So you can just take a a picture of your screen and have it just recognize all those numbers and bring that in. Yeah. Well, there, there was even a, a I was doing some performance testing, and I was copying data off the command line. That was it was giving it to me in like several different rows. But it, it wasn't able to copy directly into Excel uh, just right. It was you know, like keeping the formatting of the console. Uh, so it was like pasting all in one cell. So like right. if there was exactly. a way for me to just like, you know, dump that somewhere else, print it off and scan it in, it would have it would, uh, come in a lot more easily. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So, so this is great. I mean, this is it's just awesome. Um, use the WSL bash to telnet into the Star Wars intro, Star Wars into the, <laughs> wait, telnet into the Star Wars intro in your bash shell. All right. So this one's easy. If you go to a, a command prompt and just type WSL to mm-hmm. open up your Windows subsystem for Linux, once you have that enabled, yep, you can in the bash there type telnet space towel.blinkenlights.nl and in there it'll actually scroll the episode four like scrolling credits like you know in a a galaxy far far away you know like that whole text will scroll in your terminal i know which is which is amazing um yeah this has been like a well-known like linux thing for a while so it's really cool that it uh you can do that on windows trying to think i can't remember how to do it on linux now there's a way um so that's in the bash term. See, I don't have Telnet on mine. Oh, you don't? No, I'm on I'm on a Mac. Uh, so towel dot lights. Uh, oh, somebody made one in color too. Okay, here we go. Services. I just can't remember how to do it. I'll look it up here in a little bit, and then I'll I'll let you know. Yeah, it says Telnet. Uh, okay, well I'll do a little bit of research. I'll figure out because I know you can do this on like Linux and uh, and Mac as well. Which is pretty cool. Okay. Uh, why everyone should read support emails. Yeah. Um, I, I really thought this was an interesting article uh, because uh, the first time that you and I worked together, Jason, uh, you had actually made uh, the developers who worked on the customer-facing projects to actually do support calls. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that was really interesting, you know, in a lot of ways. But you actually get to feel the pain of the customers and kind of learn to emphasize em, – em, Emphasize. No, I can't think – not <laughs> emphasize, empathize uh, with them. Oh, uh, oh empathize. Yeah, yeah. Empathize, and, and, you know, and, and kind of, you know, feel the pain. So, you know, it, it's different when you see a dashboard and see like, hey, you know, you know, we have 57% availability this week, but they have like a, an example in here, like, you know, like, you know, like, hi, company, thank you for nothing. You made my daughter cry for 30 minutes yesterday because <laughs> she couldn't log into Stream Dora the Explorer, switch Ouch. browser, which seemed to solve half of the issues. I mean, like, you know, instead of seeing like, you know, user experiencing issue 57% of the time, like, you know, hearing that other thing, you know, that, that, that gets you outside of the data and, you know, re- helps you realize why you're doing what you're doing. 
I've even have helped family members and they call me up and it's like, Hey, how do I configure this thing? And I'm like, Oh my God, like, I don't know how a human would do this. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and it's really sad. I'm just like, this is really sad that, that there, I cannot think of a way that, you know, your normal human being would do this. Your, your average non-technical person. And that's a real problem. So yeah, hearing, hearing these actual stories. Cause like we, we were talking about that the other day. There was, uh, I won't, I won't go over through the whole thing, but we were talking about like CSAT scores, like customer satisfaction. And, you know, we had something, it's just like, oh yeah, we have the CSAT metric of 80% and now we've achieved that. And it's just like, I don't know, 20% of people are, are having like tons of problems and, and, um, you know, of the people that are satisfied, they're probably still having problems. They're like, ah, fine. It's good enough. You know, I can get by. So it's just like, it just does not represent, you know, the, the full situation the whole way. So um, okay. And the last one here, natural bamboo, wireless keyboard and mouse. Yeah. So th- this is a recommendation. I, you know, I'm assuming a little bit here, but I'm having some keyboard problems. So I just kind of like a through a blind, like, Hey, anybody got any keyboard issues? And one of our friends, uh, uh, put this out there. Well, well known as, well, we'll just call him the smart ass. <laughs> yeah. The smart ass. <laughs> but you know, I, ironically, even though I, you know, I, I wouldn't pick this keyboard and mouse, but like I've got a bamboo desk and, you know, this bamboo keyboard and mouse would actually look really nice on it. Yeah. It'd so be, if anybody like has some keyboard, <laughs> so if anybody has some uh, color backlit keyboard recommendations, let me know. Okay. Haven't you had recommendations on the show before? You, I, just- I have, but <laughs> just go back and listen to that. <laughs> So but, you had because uh, you had a mechanical keyboard for a while, right? Yeah, and uh, and uh, that's the keyboard I'm having problems with right now, uh, and, and I need to replace it. And uh, of course, it's like a month outside of the warranty. Okay, so uh, yeah, I would still I'm email sure. them. Maybe they'll maybe they'll do something for you. Uh, yeah, I'll, I will, but I'm probably also just gonna like turn this into my uh, backup keyboard. Yeah, and then personally, I'm using like I don't know what in theoretically as a really terrible keyboard it's like this logitech thing that's meant for like ipads uh but it was what i had sitting around and it's wireless and it can connect to three different devices and it has like a it has like buttons to switch between the different devices and uh i don't know it's really weird it's got round keys but uh it works i don't know i just i just got used to a terrible keyboard so that's that's another tip for you yeah, get used <laughs> don't to get a, yeah, just just get get used to a bad keyboard <laughs> Okay, I think I think I fixed Star Wars. Is it working? Um, Back to it. No, I think it's working. So if you're on a Mac, you have to do brew space install space telnet, and then you can do the tel- telnet command. Yes, it is playing. Okay, so I will not be watching that the rest of the episode. <clears throat> so have fun, guys. <laughs> now, so uh, let's uh, let's talk to Sahil here. Um, so we met a few months ago. We were we were hacking together on something. And, uh, you, uh, you were basically an identity expert. You have a lot of, a lot of background in that space and we're like, Hey, we haven't had an identity episode in a while. So we wanted to, to chat about that. So I don't know, maybe we'll start with like the easiest question. What is identity? (laughs) I, identity is, you know, who you are. Simple as that. You know, (laughs) how do I know and how can I trust that you are who you say who you are? Right. Simple as that. Like Carl was saying a moment ago, that he's got two different shaped ears. How do I know he's not artificial intelligence? How, how do I know he's real? I don't know. We may never know. <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to tell. Yeah. But I wouldn't be I would be impressed until they come up with machine learning to fill my timesheet for me. That would be awesome. 
<laughs> you could write that today. I don't know how accurate it'd be, but you can try. Yeah, you know they have that my analytics product that pretty much knows everything you're doing. They should just extend that to fill your timesheet for you. Well, there you go. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yep. Yeah. So identity is who are you? Simple okay. as that. All right. So when when we look at like integrating identity into our products, what what are the options that we have to work with today? Uh kind of looking at like if we're making something for a corporate site, something for like a public available something that's maybe on site maybe in the cloud there's like a huge matrix there you know how can we boil that down so it's a slightly long drawn answer because uh, you know it's it's very interesting identity you know if you actually trace it back to its roots uh we're building on the same paradigms that you know romans were using uh, and they they started creating this cipher where they would uh, use a secret to you know move a few letters and you would uh you know, you would, if, if a guard caught you with that letter, they just think it's something written in a foreign language. And then when the Cold War started happening, they came up with the need of, you know, like a missile can reach from Russia to America in 13 minutes, and they didn't have the flexibility of exchanging a secret ahead of time. So then they came up with this whole mechanism of how do I share a secret, uh, you know, without being able to exchange, uh, how do I exchange information secretly without being able to share a secret ahead of time? So, um, you know, the whole certificate, exchange system and encryption that's all built on that technology and uh, over time what has happened in the past few years like you know Kerberos used to be the king and corporate identity was the king and things have moved on from them haven't they uh, so for instance uh, companies like Facebook etc they've pioneered you know different identities working together things like OAuth etc but the challenge there is that their interest always has been in you oversharing right that's what social identities have all been about. And that's how they've sort of architected the whole thing. And now as these things are permeating into the corporate enterprise, uh, people are giving them a good second look and thinking how to do this properly. So modern identity is the right way of doing things, and a lot of companies are using it effectively. The good news is that there are some well-defined standards uh, on this. So if you, can, if you want, we can you know, look at the gamut of what the various choices are. Should we? Sure. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, you know, these days the protocol that uh, everybody's all about is a modern identity OAuth, and that's basically a delegation say, I'm allowing you to do something on my behalf, right? And then a standardized way of doing that is OpenID Connect, because OAuth simply means, uh, you know, if somebody has a red shirt, they can do this. It says nothing about the user's identity. So people got to this and said, no, we really need a, the user's identity. We need to agree on a few standards, and they came up with OpenID Connect. So at the end of the day, you need an access token. And that access token, you need to pass it to a resource and you say, you know, this person can do X, Y, Z. And then behind that access token, like how do you get that access token? There's a whole interesting story. So then we dive into a whole bunch of things uh, where, you know, what kind of application are you writing? And broadly speaking, you can classify that into two categories. One that can hold secrets securely, which they call as a confidential client, and one that cannot hold secrets uh, securely, which is they call as a public client. So something that is deployed to everybody's desktops out there, that cannot, reasonably speaking, hold secrets securely, like a Windows EXE deployed on your machine. So that would be a public client. And something that can hold secrets would be like a web application sitting on a server, that would be a confidential client. So they use these different flows, OAuth flows, in order to be able to get an access token. And the 
Essentially, where it starts is first the user identifying themselves, and they get something called as an ID token, which represents the user's identity, right? So that's the first token we need to know about. And then from an ID token, you would request an access token and optionally a refresh token, right? So an access token is valid for a shorter duration, typically 30 minutes to two hours. And a refresh token is what you would use to renew that access token on an ongoing basis. So the user is not presented with a login dialogue every 30 minutes, right? And then you can say, well, with this ID token, so I am person X and I have the rights to do Y, uh, but then with that ID token, I can say for this resource URI, as in I can call Microsoft Graph slash user dot read, give me an access token, refresh token pair, and then I can go party with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at a high level, that's how all these OAuth2 flows work. And then we dive into these unique flows for individual platforms that are you know specific to the platform. Yep. And that's what enables me to like use like log in with Google, log in with Facebook, log in with Microsoft. That's what enables all that. Exactly. Yeah. So for instance, I can log in with Google and Google gives me an ID token saying I am blah. Mm-hmm. And then I can log into Azure AD with a Google identity. And I can say with this Google identity, I can do Y with mm-hmm. the Y being a web API that I can call. Exactly. Yeah. Because you can associate like the local ID with essentially the Google ID. Yep, In, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then um, we should probably also look at, you know, because I think, you know, as far as like Azure is concerned and, and what people are traditionally uh, used to on Windows is Azure, or sorry, is Active Directory. And then there's also Azure Active Directory. And I've actually heard somebody from that team walk through every single letter and say, it's not, it's not Azure, it's not active, and it's not a directory. <laughs> so the whole thing is, uh, is a little bit confusing. But how, how does a- Azure Active Directory, AAD, differ from AD Active Directory? So the first thing to know about AAD is that it's not a repl- replacement for your AD, mm-hmm. right? So typically speaking, AD... You know, you use it to manage your resources, you, uh, you know, group policies, et cetera, and user identities on the network, right? Now, for service accounts, AD is still a perfect candidate. For a lot of backend systems, AD, they still understand only AD, like Kerberos, et cetera. Like especially in the data field, you run into a lot of that. Um, but when you move things to the cloud, your active directory just cannot scale to the level of the cloud, right? Because there's a central point of failure, domain controller. Everybody needs to talk to the domain controller. And, you know, you just can't create, go on creating trust relationships and VPNs with every person you need to work with. Mm-hmm. So two companies need to work with, <coughs> consultants need to come in and go. For that, you need modern identities. So AAD can work with or without AD, right? But AAD is a perfect extension of AD that it enables modern identity to work with AD. So there's a product called Azure AD Connect, which allows you to sync AD identities into Azure AD. And then from there, uh, you know, Azure AD can say, all right, when it comes to authenticating, as in telling us who you are, we federate or delegate the responsibility to ADFS, which is backed with an AD. And it's all standards-based. It doesn't even have to be ADFS, as long as any standards-based identity provider. And then from there, when it comes to supporting the modern protocols and all the other new features like integration with Intune, et cetera, all of that comes through AAD. So AAD is a lot more than just identity. And it also comes with SDKs like MCEL, ADEL, 
third-party libraries. So then you can start building applications on it. And oh, by the way, because now we're speaking a common language, and then we're all following protocols, there are a lot of, you know, thousands of SaaS applications that you can just point and click at. So like a world of opportunities opens up for you once you integrate with A. Yeah. And one of those SaaS applications would be like Office 365, right? I can log in with my Azure Directory account. Um, is there anything special about Office 365 then, or is it just using AAD as an identity provider? Indeed it is. I mean, you know, when you log into Office 365, think of Office 365 as the yellow of the egg and the white of the egg is Azure AD. So you need an Azure AD identity to log into Office 365. So when you, if you have Office 365 tenancy, guess what? You have an Azure AD identity at that point. Okay. So, you know, I was reading about having like taking an, a hybrid approach to this, but by having an on-prem at, uh, Active Directory and Azure AD, does that give me, you know, a hybrid uh, capability sense here? Or was uh, I mistaken on that? And that was talking about something else. No, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, hybrid is a you know obviously a very overused word, but when you sign up for an identity in Azure AD, there are different levels you can go through. So let's say if I just go to office365.com and create myself an account and swipe my credit card, I get what they call as a Microsoft hosted identity. So the username and password are both being owned by Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Now I can associate a custom domain with it but still the username and password are being hosted by Microsoft, right? And that's great, but a lot of larger companies, they have investments in Active Directory. So then you have another choice where you can take an application called Azure AD Connect, and you can have Azure AD Connect sync these identities into the cloud. And then the next question arises, which is like, okay, I've synced these identities, but what about their credentials, the passwords, or or something other than passwords that you may be using, like Windows Hello? So there you've got multiple choices. One is that we don't want to sync uh, you know, passwords and we basically sync a hash of a hash of a password, uh, in which case you have some downside. It's a simple setup, but the downside is that the, there may be up to a three-hour difference between the two sides and single sign-on, et cetera, doesn't work very well. If you go all the way to the other side, you've got something called ADFS, where you say no passwords in the cloud, But anytime there's an authentication, there's a redirect that happens to an ADFS endpoint that we've set up. And there's a new capability called pass-through where a user enters a credential and it sits on the equivalent of a service bus and Azure AD Connect pulls it and it pulls it inside, validates it against the domain controller and gives a yes or no and also puts a Kerberos, uh, you know, SPN in it. So even scenarios like Kerberos work with it. And... This is really, really cool because this pass-through authentication is, is new about, I think they rolled it out a year last year or something, uh, but it gives you almost all the advantages of ADFS, ADFS, but with none of the complexity. So it's a really compelling alternative. And the last two options I described, ADFS and pass-through, could be considered as a hybrid setup. Okay. And then um, if I'm building something and I want to choose an identity provider, like what are the types of things that I want to look at? How do I... How do I figure out which one I want to use? That's a that's a great question because, you know, feature set is not the number one thing you should look at when you are looking for identity mm-hmm. providers. What you want to look at is security, scale, and support from a library's perspective, right? Because, and the, and the last bullet has got asterisks on it, and I'll mention that in a second. But when you talk about, you know, scale, let's say you are a big fast food company and you're lo- rolling out a mobile app and... Uh, Tomorrow the app goes live and thousands and thousands and millions right. of users are going to 
you know, place it orders. You want to make sure you can scale to that level. Uh, so that's scale. That's very important. Number two is security. How good is a feature set if you get compromised, right? Especially in the case of identity. And, and there are a lot of like, you know, it's not just that you get hacked. It's, that's not this one dimension. What is the audit logging on it? Can you store these logs for a long duration of time in a singular cloud environment that you trust? You know, Azure works with Azure. Azure AD works with Azure Log Analytics, for instance. You can archive these logs. Uh, are you GDPR compliant or whatever? You know, Azure government has its own thing and Azure China has its own thing. So you need to make sure that you comply with all of those requirements, the laws, et cetera. And the last thing is about the libraries and SDK support. And I think the best thing I can say over there is that go with somebody who's standards compliant. Because once you're standards compliant, you work with a number of third-party libraries. Raygun provides full-stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full-stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes. Dramatically improve the online experience of your users. What is B2B and B2C, and how does that fit into this mix of identity you know, acronym soup? Yeah, this is, uh, again, it's a confusing thing. Because we, I'm convinced at Microsoft we have a department of bad naming. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's rather interesting because the intentions are right, but then the product becomes more powerful than it originally was intended for. So there's B2E, which is my company talking with my employees. Active Directory fits in that. B2B is where businesses wish to work with each other. Azure AD works perfectly there with some gray areas, right? Because some of them, you know, trespass into the B2C category. And then there's B2C, where you want to work with consumers, where you uh, a curated user experience is very important. You may not know all the user identities ahead of time. Maybe you want to build a social profile, as in somebody logs into Facebook and Twitter, but you can coalesce their identities using their email addresses. And where things become gray is that B2C can federate to Azure AD B2B, the usual Azure AD. So Azure AD can act as an identity provider in addition to Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, et cetera. So then, you know, things become all mixed up over there. But essentially what that gives you is B2B-like flexibility with a curated user experience and everything that you expect from a B2C platform. So yeah, that's B2B, B2C, and B2E. Mm -hmm. The lines can be blurry. Okay. And then if if I'm building an internal enterprise application, um, there's this whole process of like getting my IT department to basically allow the application and then they give me some kind of token back or I don't know what the heck it is. Um, and I, I have no access to those. So like at Microsoft, I honestly have no idea how to do this. I've seen other people do it. Uh, I think it was witchcraft, but they, uh, you know, they had to contact somebody and it's like, Hey, we want to be able to allow every, you know, people within the company to authenticate against this. So what kind of magic is going on there? Well, so rightfully so, uh, you know, because these things are entering the corporate space now and the protocols were never thought with that in mind initially because the social media companies, their intent was for you to overshare. So rightfully there are controls in place where 
any user can't just add any random application into your Azure AD and thereby granting a lot of access to a lot of corporate data. That would be not a good idea, right? So Azure AD has got controls built in there and, and those controls are improving as we go along as well. So there's a concept of like, you know, admin permissions and delegated permissions. Uh, that is one way of slicing and dicing this. And then there is the concept of using regular RBAC where you can say, you know, certain users can add new applications and they can hit approve on a new application, but administrators can obviously whitelist applications. And there's a new capability being rolled out called the admin consent, where if a normal user tries to add an application, currently Azure AD will just say, sorry, you can't, you need to be an admin. Uh, and then you can go to the admin and you can beg them for attention. You can say, can you please grant access to this app? That's one way of doing it. But a new capability being rolled out is where you can fill a little text box and you can say, uh, you know, please grant, uh, you know, I need access to this application because it ends up in an admin queue and they can approve or deny it and you can track it and all of that. Like like SharePoint does, right? I need access to this site. Very similar to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, these are the various, uh, you know, ways and the reasons why these restrictions have been put in place. And I think it's a good idea that there are these restrictions. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm I'm kind of an identity idiot. So you got to help me here. So if I, if I make my application, we'll call it like super app, and uh, I allow, let's say I, I go to, I go to my employer and I say, please add this application, like allow me to authenticate against our, our Azure Active Directory directory. And uh, they let me do that. And now I have, you know, so he'll, he, you know, he logs into my application and I get a token. Does that automatically mean that that token will let me access like any of their stuff or is that separate? So there are two levels of control here. So for instance, as a new user, Sahil, is he part of your organization or not? That's question one. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we're both part of the same company. Okay. Yeah. So if we're part of the same company as a single tenant app, uh, and that's, you know, that's, but if I was an external user, you have a level of check there as well. Okay. So, so that's one thing. But even beyond that, when an application is allowed to be uh, signed in, as in that, you grant that users can authenticate against it. That's just, you registered the app in Azure AD and sign-in is available. But what can that app do, right? And more than that, what can the app plus the user do? And those are the various permissions that need to be given okay. to that application. So what can the app do? That's application permission. And what can the app plus user do where the user identity is important is delegated permission. Okay. And you need to explicitly, like the basic permission of graph slash user dot read is available to everyone. That's the same, that's the user's identity, the same stuff you get out of an ID token, right? Mm -hmm. uh, however, that's, that's also what they call as a basic profile. It's part of the Open ID Connect standard. But if I want to read my emails, my emails, right? That would be a delegated identity because my identity is important there. But if I want to read the users list in our, like all the users in our directory, that would be an application permission. So over there. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like the user's identity doesn't matter, but it's a specific permission you need to give to be able to do something. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Because to me, it was just like, I just, I was thinking of that. There's just like one set of keys, but it's much more nuanced than that. Your, your keys are programmed to what you're allowed to do and who you are. So that that's awesome. Yeah. And then, and then you get an ID token and then each one of these permissions have a resource URI and you can say, okay, now give me an access token 
for that permission. And the good thing about this V2 endpoint that we keep talking about, MSAL, et cetera, is that you can enhance those permissions without having to go through a login logout process. Okay. So you can enhance on the fly. You can say, all right, now I need access to your calendar. And then okay. if the user hits deny, we can react accordingly. We can say, oh, the user had denied, so we're just going to show something else in the UI. So a lot of flexibility there. Okay, that's awesome. So what are some common errors that developers make when they're architecting an uh, you know, an application around an identity solution? Um, the first most common error is not sticking with standards, right? Don't reinvent identity yourself. That would be the most awful thing you can do. You cannot get it right. There are some very smart people out there who's who spent their entire careers on one thing trying to hack you, right? So you won't you won't be able to outsmart them. So sit on the shoulders of others. That's the number one most important thing. Now, the whole platform is also quite extensible. And when we talk about things like implementing a token cache, et cetera, uh, like, you know, keeping your refresh tokens safe for use, I would say don't invent it yourself. Look online and see what guidance people are offering and borrow from that rather than try and invent it yourself. Because there are hundreds of things there that even the smartest people of us wouldn't think of. Uh, you know, like Friday evening, 5 p.m., your friends are at a bar. Are you going to think of that weird nuance where you won't, right? So you just need to, uh, you know, bag, borrow, steal as much as you can. Mm-hmm. So anytime I sign up for a new service, if they, it's it's kind of funny because I, I, w- I really want to get your take on this because if they offer, let's say, a Facebook login, and then they also, you know, it says like, "Hey, create a username and password." I always pick the username and password option because I don't, I don't want to, I don't trust Facebook as an identity provider. And and actually, I've I've been uh, seriously considering deleting my Facebook account completely. And uh, you know, I've just been sort of doing like a thought experiment, like what is this actually going to affect? And fortunately, I haven't, you know, signed up on a whole bunch of these sites, but like there are some sites or apps where like the only login is a Facebook login, uh, which is, which is pretty crazy. So, you know, how does that affect your statement that you should never write your own identity or, or can you use some other identity on the back, back end while still allowing sort of local using passwords? Like, what is your take on that? Like, what do you do? <laughs> well, username password is not secure, right? Okay. So you have to have MFA. And even, yeah. <laughs> that's what I use. That's what I use. Like I said, for, for all different, and I use random passwords and everything, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking now, yeah, that's not, that's not necessarily the best way to go. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, even if it's a random password, that that's certainly better than reusing the same password. Um, but uh, it's username password is just not security at all. Even MFA is crackable because they just, they can just put something in the middle. That's just a replayer and uh, replay your request and, you know, gain your MFA session that way. Um, so there are some new standards emerging that are great, but the bottom line is that identity, like anything else, is like bike lock, right? No bike lock is secure. You just want to make sure yours is uh, more secure than the guy next to you mm-hmm. or just park next to a shitty bike. That's the other solution. <laughs> or Sorry, the other way around, park next to an expensive bike, so they, they steal that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the thing is that you want to delegate identity because you don't have a lot of passwords to remember them. Unfortunately, when you're delegating identity, companies use it for, you know, things that they didn't promise you for. For instance, Facebook. Um, I'll give you a specific example of Facebook. Please don't sue me. Because but what I'm saying is like factually correct is that you should use MFA, right? 
And yeah, Facebook says, please use MFA and we're going to need your phone number. Even they have a code in their app, but they require your phone number. Guess what? They use a phone number to mine stuff. And you know what? Like this actually, I use this. Anytime I get a spam call. I just saw that call, news story. I just saw yeah. that. <laughs> I was like, man, I wish that news story hadn't come out. Because anytime I get a spam call, I search for that number in Facebook and frequently yep. it's like, oh, it's somebody I know. Okay, then I, now I can answer that, right? Uh, but still, when they signed me up for MFA, they didn't tell me that they were going to use my phone number for this, right? And I just find that really icky, right? If they told me and I agreed to, that's a different deal. But they didn't tell me that this is what they were planning and using it for. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem is that when you delegate identity out to somebody, you are, uh, you know, giving your keys to somebody and you have to trust that who that somebody is, Uh Good or bad, but that's where we are. <laughs> so, so I can't I can't use the local identity because it's insecure, and I can't use Facebook because they're stealing everything and they're dishonest. So, so what do I do? Well, I mean, the one thing you can do is that you know you have to see what are they using the identity for. Yeah, as in, like, say, so when I trust Microsoft with my identity, for instance, what are they storing for me? If it's just the basic profile, that's okay, but. Frequently, what happens is that when you hit allow on any random website out there, um, that allow asks for way too many things than they really need. Yep. Like sign you in at any time and read your OneDrive files. Why? Um, you know, so, so that's one thing you have to be cognizant of. There's two things I'd say. Number one is that see what identity does the identity provider care about. And uh, number two is what permissions you allow. So personally, what I do is that I have a, you know, like a Google identity and a, uh, you know, Microsoft account. And these accounts are different from my usual accounts. And I just use those to sign into these random websites because I know Google doesn't have my credit card associated with that identity. Mm-hmm. And they really don't have any information on me, but I'm just using that as just a way to prove who I am. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's t- typically what I do. Yeah. I keep re- my real work separate. Okay. That, that's a good idea. I, you know, I, Right or wrong, I trust uh, Microsoft, uh, you know, identity, and I trust the Google identity because I feel like I don't know Google. They're they're usually not quite as nefarious. Um, Facebook seems to like they they seem to just always take like the the low road. Yeah, and I really just don't I just don't really don't want to be part of that. But like I said, I, I, I right or wrong, I trust Microsoft, Google. Um, if there's some other providers, you know, I sort of evaluate those as is, but, uh, man, what a tough situation. I I think I'm going to continue though. Uh, I'll probably continue to make local accounts. Like, I guess to me, the other thing is that it depends on like what I'm storing there. You know, Mm -hmm. usually I'm pretty anonymous anyway. Like it's just... You know, like here's my sleep data or nah, well, maybe that's even a bad. Well, maybe that is a good example because like I have an account with the app like that. But um, I mean, that data is like, you know, pretty, well, pretty but, obfuscated. But here's the thing. Like there's this uh, well-known mattress company that was selling mattresses and their privacy policy said that they are recording everything that you say in the bedroom. Yeah. yeah. Right. This came out and it's in their privacy policy and you agreed to it when you installed their app. Right. You know, the thing is, nobody reads those 60-page privacy policies, and uh, you may think that it's anonymous, harmless data, but it may not be. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge you're running into, and I just think companies are really pushing boundaries here. Uh, the, the good news, though, is that on the corporate side, it's worth mentioning that on the corporate side, with things like Windows Hello, uh, you can go to 100% passwordless. Windows Hello with, you know, a TPM chip on your laptop, 
and a depth sensing camera is very, very secure. Yeah. Right. And I'd say even the iPhone face ID is very, very secure. And you can use that as your identity and, you know, use that to authenticate. And there's new standards emerging like web authentication. Uh, and you can use, you know, spread that identity. It's like not like a username password, but it is a secure identity that you control. It's not a Google or a Microsoft that is controlling it. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's typical. I mean, so yeah, for consumers, it's a tough choice really right now because, you know, average consumer is not going to set up an active directory and uh, the companies are really goading you to overshare. And that's a, that's a real challenge. Yeah. Or they're, I mean, they're just using Facebook because it's, it's easy. It's quick and easy. And they just like, well, everybody has a Facebook account. So let's just do that. You know, just centralizing more power within Facebook. Indeed. But I do think you, you know, like, uh, you will see companies cut down on that. Like, uh, IFTTT, for instance, they had a LinkedIn integration. And uh, it's going to go, go, go bye-bye in a couple of weeks because LinkedIn realized, you know, this automatic integration is convenient, but it's also dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Facebook did that recently as well. They don't, you know, like if you can't link your Twitter to Facebook anymore. Uh, right. Like I used to do this, like anytime, anything I tweet, it show up on Facebook and LinkedIn. Yep. Then I get the maximum, you know, discussions going on it. But you can't do that anymore now. Right. So you see these walls come up because but we're catching this problem from behind, basically. Mm-hmm. It's yep. a challenge. It's a big challenge. Okay. I think as a consumer, I'd be very afraid right now. <laughs> <laughs> I am afraid. I'm terrified. <laughs> like, you know, the example I give in the identity world, it's a, uh, it, this example doesn't work any well, that good anymore. But still, when North Korea was firing these uh, nuclear weapons and missiles all over the place, it's a, if you were a country and your neighbor was North Korea, would you be worried? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'd be absolutely. very worried. Yeah. I was in South Korea and I'm, you know, it's, it's a thought like one of the sightseeing areas is like the demilitarized zone. Yeah. You know, it's like, Hey, this is like the, one of our top tourist attractions. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Now, but if you're in Finland, would you be worried about North Korea? Uh, probably not. Cause I believe they are far apart, but I'm terrible yeah. geography. But, but there's, <laughs> there's just, there's just one country between Finland and North Korea and that's Russia. Okay. Right. And now you're like, oh, okay. Well, maybe I should be worried. Right. But yeah, let me, let me look at a map before I tell you if I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in the identity world, though, Jason, yep. Kim Jong un could be in your computer right now and you wouldn't know. Right. We are all each other's neighbors in the identity world on the internet and things move at the speed of light. Oh, yeah. Finland's way up there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's just, just Russia between North. Yeah. Yeah. Russia's right? pretty small. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but still in the identity world, these distances mean nothing. Right. Right. And and we, you know, in South Korea, are so worried about North Korea and vice versa. Hopefully not anymore. Let's hope. But the point is in the identity world, everybody's your neighbor. And things move at the speed of light. And they make no noise when that happens. So it's a, it's a genuine concern. And I just think we're catching the problem from behind. We have to be extra over careful these days i mean you know it's just crazy with identity theft and all that it's uh, it's a real challenge yes didn't mean to you know have everybody worry about this but i th- i think it is something you should watch out for certainly all right with that is there anything else new in the identity landscape that we haven't covered yet how much time do we have left <laughs> <laughs> well however much time you want but uh you know maybe like four hours would be too much <laughs> okay all right let's uh, there's a a really interesting thing coming out, which is called the Web Authentication Standard, that personally I am very, very excited about. 
basically, it's a standardized way for uh, you know web browsers to exchange credentials. So it's the it's the beginning of March right now, where we all are busy filing our taxes here here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, I was doing that over the weekend, and the number of sites I need to log in is just it's it's so overwhelming. And these sites are secure, like bank accounts, etc. So they're all connected with the MFA. They all time you out within two minutes. It's gotten to the point that it is secure somewhat, but it's so inconvenient, right? And things like web authentication, et cetera, are really going to solve that challenge. And they work very nicely. It's a basically a way for the web browser to present credentials. And these standards are being implemented by all the browsers that we, as we go. So you'll be able to have identities on your computer that are securely stored with certificates, TPM. It's extensible, uh, and have you present an identity to whoever is asking for an identity. And I, and I don't know, there was a very long time ago, there was a project in the Microsoft space called as uh, Card Space. Do you remember that? Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was a blast from the past, right? Yeah. It was a little ahead of its time. But basically, the way that worked is that on a Windows machine, you would visit a site and you'd be shown cards, right? It'd be like, okay, these are the identities that are on your machine, which one do you want to use to authenticate to this site here, right? And you would pick a card and that identity would be sent securely. So web authentication is very similar, but it's a cross-platform way. It'll work on mobile devices. It'll work through across all browsers. And it is tied all the way, potentially, like how deep you want to take it, but it could be tied all the way to, to the TPM chip on your Windows machine. Uh, so that is one thing that I think is going to really simplify our lives once people adopt it which I hope is in the near future. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else that you wanted to make sure you covered? Um, naturally, AI is touching everything except my timesheet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it did. I mean, that would be so nice. Well, yeah. So I, I, my understanding, like there's, there's a ton of AI that's going into, you know, figuring out, like you were talking about these attacks on these systems, um, you know, identifying, hey, this looks like a really suspicious authentication pattern. Although yeah. it had to look really strange when I was in South Korea and then I kept VPNing into the US. So like half my authentication was coming from the US from like San Francisco and the other half was from South Korea. <laughs> that had to yeah. look suspicious. So I'm surprised that wasn't locked out. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the day when I travel and uh, one of my accounts gets locked out and the recovery account is another account that is locked out and I'm right. stuck in an infinite loop. Right. Just, and, and then they're like, oh, stop by. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> stop in and we'll, we'll let you, we'll unlock this for you. Yeah. So this AI-based uh, stuff is it, it's it's crucial, I think, to the identity landscape. So it's basically an anomaly detection, uh, and especially when you look at something like Azure AD, for instance, they they're processing billions of logins all the time. Mm-hmm. And say the Tor browser, uh, their exit points keep changing all the time. And if somebody's trying to do a password spray attack, which is basically they're using a password dictionary, but they're using it against all the user accounts in your company. Right. And they're doing it slowly and they're doing it in a distributed way. Right. So to essentially to a domain controller, this would just look like somebody's just entering wrong passwords for all the accounts. It's not going to look like an attack to a domain controller. But when you rise up to the level of Azure AD and you look at billions of accounts and there's a pattern going on them, and then you look at all the exit points of the Tor browser and, and correlate those two, uh, and you need AI for something like that. You need a lot of data crunching. You need to, you know, the thing is you're looking at patterns, but you don't know what patterns to look for because those patterns haven't emerged yet. And that's where right. AI comes in. 
Yeah, I mean, you're looking, so you guard against one problem, and you can say if-then-else loops, you can guard, but you're catching the problem from behind. And so again, with Azure AD Premium, there are a lot of, even, so there's this thing called risk events, right? Which is available with both the free version and with premium. With premium, you get more insight. Uh, but that is where, I mean, Azure can look at all of these logs across billions of logins and alert you to these problems that you may not even be thinking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and another thing that you can pair with this is progressive multi-factor. And you may have actually already seen this happen, but uh, a lot of us, you know, when things just work, we're happy, but we don't, but we complain when something breaks, right? But one of the things that you may have noticed is that uh, in Azure AD over the last uh, year or two, it doesn't ask you to log in every single time. And it doesn't ask you to do MFA every single time, even if it asks you to log in every time, right? So let's say, all the, we're developers, we have a lot of identities on our machines, right? So I have five different, say, Azure subscriptions or whatever, I log into all of these places and I sign in, sign out all the time. So I don't hit the remember me thing, right? But the next time I sign in, it asks me only for my password, even though I did not have multi-factor enabled, I did have multi-factor enabled right. on that account, right? Why is that? Because it just correlated. It said, okay, you're from the same machine, you're from the same IP address, nothing has changed. I don't need to bother you and make your life inconvenient. It's a low-risk event. Yeah. But when I travel on the very same account, on the very same machine, now it's asking me for multi-factor. So this is, again, it's an anomaly that was detected. But rather than blocking me out, they take me to a level multi-factor, which I can, with relative convenience, provide those credentials. And then it doesn't bother me for the week that I'm there. When I come back, it may bother me again. Right, and these are the kinds of things with the AI that we can make, basically make make things both more sec- secure and more convenient for the end user. That's great. We need we need a lot more of that because I hate these sites where you you can't save your password and they won't let you copy and paste it in either. You know, so it's like, oh hey, you know that sixteen character random password? I'm going to make you in. type that. <laughs> that is crazy. That yeah. is backwards. Yeah. Another thing that is backwards is uh, password complexity. And requiring your users to reset the password very, very frequently. So there is this uh, study done by NIST, and they've proven with stats that this is actually goes backwards because people reuse passwords in that sense. And what they do is they come up with so they'll just put like winter, summer, autumn, spring, or you know, the changing month at the end of the password because it's impossible to remember it. Or worst case, they'll just write it on a post-it. Yep. Right. So yeah, I mean that's just the. That's the problem in security. It's a lot of people solve, a lot of large companies, corporate solve it in a very backwards manner sometimes. I mean, who am I to complain? You know, it's like Azure AD's password restrictions are eight to 16 characters, right? It should be more customizable than that. Yeah. I'm hoping eight to a thousand. <laughs> or just allow me to specify my own patterns and let my company decide what it should be. Because yeah, exactly. if I say that if I've moved to Windows Hello and I don't need that super duper. Or rather, if I move to Windows Hello, passwords are out. But if I do need a password as an exception, like say RDP to an RDP to an RDP, and there's an old system there that doesn't understand yep. all this, well, then you can give me a temporary password uh, that is very complicated. Uh, and and that, that, that's a way to solve that. By the way, there's another really cool thing called privileged identity management, uh, which basically says nobody's admin. Nobody is admin, right? So a lot of companies solve this as you are JSON and you're JSON admin, right? And then over time, what happens is that these things start getting mixed up because it's just too inconvenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, with privilege identity, we can say, Carl, you are admin 
on this system from 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. And it's all audited, all logged. And so there's some really, really good management tools that the overall cloud suite has that I think can help you get your story under control. Okay, very cool. Should we move on? Let's move on to the dev tip of the week. What do you got, Carl? Uh, what I have for you this week is a new Visual Studio Code extension. Uh, yes. what, it, what it does is, uh, I don't know if you're anything like me, Jason, but you might have more than one Visual Studio Code instance open at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're kind of, they're related projects, but not the same project. So you don't want to open the same workspace. And sometimes you lose track of which one's which. What this extension will do is let you change the color of one. It'll let you change the actual theme of it. So it's, uh, you know, color, uh, separated. Uh, that way you can say, Hey, my orange instance is, uh, you know, the website I'm, I'm working on and the blue instance is this other service that that orange instance needs. That's cool. That's a great idea. Yeah, and so I now you not to look at colors as much, but uh, but that still looks super useful. I'd love to see some patterns. I guess I yeah, and uh, helpful, yeah, on the second link in the show notes, it actually has like uh, an animated uh, image that lets you see uh, the uh, extension in use. Yep. No, that looks super cool. I like it. Visual Studio Visual VS Code extensions are really easy to make, so I love to see this type of stuff. Okay, and then it looks like you found another question of the week. So I'll ask Sahil this one. Uh, <laughs> we have this weird game where we ask really weird questions. So would oh, no. you rather have the blood in your veins boil or freeze? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? I was, I was not prepared for that. <laughs> Carl. <laughs> Carl. <laughs> that kills people. <laughs> <laughs> It does. It does. It would. So, both of those. This is the worst question we've ever had, Carl. (laughs) This is hard. Seriously. I'm doing them in order. I'm I'm not trying to cherry pick. (sighs) Okay. So, it's totally unbiased. So, both are going to kill me, right? Yeah. How do you want to die? Yeah. How do I want to die? These are your two options. It used to be, would you rather? Now it's, how would you like to die? Thanks, Carl. (laughs) Okay. So, I would say boil, but really, really quickly. (laughs) <laughs> like uh like like instant flash boil yeah is there such a thing hopefully that would be because i am hoping that the air bubbles would do something in my brain i won't feel any pain because both are going to kill me right freeze because temperature travels at a finite speed i'm going to feel it go through me for a longer time i'm thinking i don't know I, there is no good answer <laughs> yeah i agree i'm not even going to answer this this is uh, neither, Carl. This is the worst <laughs> question by far that we've ever had. <laughs> um, whichever whichever one is more painless. Is is there a reason why you're asking this, Carl? <laughs> hey, I, I have the book. I know, I know. Okay, well, we'll just move on here. So, <laughs> where can people find you? Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was interesting. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more. So, where can they find me? So, Twitter at Sahil Malik, that is S-A-H-I-L-M-A-L-I-K. In retrospect, maybe I, maybe I should have picked something simpler, but that's my full name. That's pretty simple. And I like it. That's simple enough. Yeah. And uh, uh, and my website is www.winsmarts, that is plural, dot com. Okay, very cool. And where can people find you, Carl? Uh, at the much more complicated last name of uh, Twitter, uh, uh, on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. So, and you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash 
uh, boil or freeze. <laughs> no, it's uh, slash why techie. So Sahil, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about identity. Um, always great talking to you. My pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you for having me.